my name is Pastor Jake. I am the lead pastor and chief communicator here at Great Oaks. Have the honor and privilege to uh, unpack the Word of God, study the Word of God with you today. Um, but we've got a lot to cover today, and it's going to be kind of a sprint right up to the finish line. So I'm just going to jump into it. If you have your Bible, you can head over to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We're going to look through that. And then we're also going to look at Ephesians 5. So Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then Ephesians 5. And uh, we're in a series called Rhythm. Everybody say rhythm. We're in a series called Rhythm, and the foundational idea is that God created the world and everything in it, including our lives, including you and me, to function in a certain way, right? Um, Like a song, our lives work best at a certain rhythm, in a certain rhythm, and um, the, but the arrhythmia of sin entered the world in Genesis 3 and messed that whole thing up, and Um, like an infection, it affected every corner of God's good creation, including our lives. And so um, we are born, you and I are born in sin, in this arrhythmia, already singing a song different from the song we were created to sing, already on the wrong side of the battle lines, already unable to play our part correctly in the orchestra of creation, despite the fact that you were created to do so, and that the world sings his praises. The universe sings his praises, the Bible says, and uh, that he has given you everything you need to play that part. We still don't play it correctly. But Jesus, he fixed that on the cross, right? Jesus fixed um, our sin problem on the cross. Jesus came and he died. He entered from the outside in, just like sin entered Eden from the outside in. Jesus entered human history from the outside in, and he died on a cross, and he rose again from the dead, and in so doing, shocked the heart of creation back into rhythm. And so now you and I, we have this opportunity to give our lives over to Jesus and to live our lives lined up completely with God's rhythm, the best way to live our lives, the way that we fulfill our purpose and get fulfillment and satisfaction in Christ through this rhythm. And he has been very clear about this. The good news is that God has not been silent about his rhythm because you and I, even after we give our lives over to Christ, still work our entire lives trying to get back to Genesis 1 and 2, trying to get back there into the rhythm we were created to work in. But God has not kept his rhythm silent or secret. He has broadcast it in his scriptures to you and to me to line our lives up with the rhythm he created them to work best in. He has been he has broadcast this in his word. Has it, how many of you have been here for the rhythm series the last few weeks? So you're with me so far, right? Uh, you're with me so far. And so we've taken on a few rhythms that show up in the Bible. And so we started with a devotional rhythm. We talked about then a, a Thanksgiving rhythm. We've talked about a Sabbath rhythm. Last week we talked about presence rhythm, about being fully present right here, right now, which is out of control, difficult in our era, in our culture, in our time. And so uh, if you missed any of those, I don't have time to review those. If you missed any of those, just make sure you get the podcast off of Um, our website or iTunes, and especially week one, because that kind of explains the whole thing for the series, and it'll help you understand what we're going to talk about today. So today, I want to talk to you about marriage rhythm. Everybody say marriage rhythm. I want to talk about 
marriage rhythm. The best book I've ever read on marriage outside of the Bible is one called The Mingling of Souls by an author named Matt Chandler. And so uh, I recommend it to you. Uh, Some of my message today is informed by this book. And so if you are married, uh, plan to be married, might be married, or know someone who is married, I think you should get this book and read it. Um, It goes through dating. If you're a parent, you need to read this, okay? It goes through dating and courtship and all of that. So I would love for you to, to read that. But Marriage is something that affects everyone in here because you're either married and and need help like every other married person ever or whether or not you're too prideful to admit that is another thing. Okay, we talk about that later. But um, you're married and and you need help. Um, You used to be married. Uh, You're you're not married but you kind of want to be or you're dating, um, trying to figure out if you want to be married. And if somehow none of that is you, You've got parents and friends and coworkers and grandparents who at least at one time were married, right? And so this affects, marriage affects everybody. In fact, it affects the very fabric of our culture and of our um, morals and things like that. And so it's, it's a big, big deal. And there's plenty to talk about as far as marriage goes, right? Like we could, this message could be about almost anything. I mean, it could be about a lot of stuff as we look at marriage rhythm. It could be about a lot of stuff. And Chandler, when he starts his book, he writes um, that at the time of writing it a few uh, years ago, he says Amazon listed 151,000 books on marriage and almost 200,000 books on sex. 151,000 on marriage, 200,000 on sex. And a ton of those marriage books have titles like aggressive divorce um, or divorce help for women. And one I just saw this last week said, divorce, think financially, not emotionally. Divorce, think financially, not emotionally. So clearly we are a people who is both obsessed with relationships and marriage and all of that, and yet dysfunctional in our approaches to them, right? Clearly we have a problem. And so we need some help, don't we? I mean, we need some help. We need some help. Can we just admit that right now, that we all need help in our marriages? Married people, can you just say this with me? Say, I need help in my marriage. Say it again. I need help in my marriage. That's okay because it's everybody and marriage is not easy. The stuff you see on TV about it just kind of falling into place and everything just kind of working out. and If it's meant to be, it'll happen and, and all of that junk, it's just not true. But what I'm hoping to do today is kind of talk big picture and talk about the creation of marriage, what went wrong, who's behind it, what went wrong, and how we can kind of get back there. Because this whole series is about getting back to the rhythm that God created the universe to work best in. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Um, I, that's what I want to talk about today because it's worth our effort. And there is a way to get your marriage or your future marriage where it needs to be. There is hope for that, no matter how impossible it may seem. 
So I don't know what you're bringing in here today. I don't know if like you were in the minivan on the way here screaming and cussing and, and you use choice words and you're worried right now that your son or daughter's going to let one of those slip in the kids' ministry. I don't know what happened on the way here. I don't know what happened last night. I don't know what happened the last few weeks as you've struggled through heartbreak or whatever it is. I don't know what you've brought into this room. But what I want you to hear right out of the gate this morning is that there is hope for your marriage. That there is hope for your marriage. But it's not going to be easy. In fact, I would say marriage is the most difficult thing you'll ever do with your life. It is the most difficult thing you'll ever do. I'm convinced of that, but it's worth it. And not just in a here and now kind of way, but in an eternal you and God kind of way. But it won't be easy. It won't be easy. All right, Genesis 1. We looked at this closely in week one of this series, but let's read it again. Just the first verse, Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But from there unfolds what we call the creation narrative in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, right? The story of how everything came into being. And we find in that account God creating the world, the universe, everything in it, you and me, all everything in this rhythm, in this shalom, in this peace. He creates everything in this certain rhythm and in perfection and everything works how it's supposed to work and so he speaks light into existence and he creates the land and then he separates it from the waters and he creates the moon and the sun and all the stars and then he goes about creating plants and then fish and then uh, animals that creep along the ground and all of that and then he goes and he begins to create man you guys heard this story before just making sure He goes to create man, and he creates the man in the same shalom, the same peace, the same rhythm, the same perfection that he created the rest of uh, creation in. He created the rest of the universe in. And, And so he creates the man, and he says, he puts the man in the middle of his good and perfect creation in Eden, and he says, take dominion over it. Go, take dominion over it. You're in charge of all of the creative order. Take dominion over it. So he does this, and this is Genesis 2, and Adam, the first man, starts to do what God said, starts to, tell, starts to do what God told him to do, and God gives him one rule. He says, don't, don't eat from this one tree. You can eat anything else. Don't eat from this one tree, the, not, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't, just don't eat from there. Trust me, just don't do that. So he gives this one rule, and things are going well in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, but then God looks at Adam, And after he's created everything in this rhythm, saying it's good in Genesis 1, he created the light, and he looked at the light, and it was good. He created the land and the water, and he looked at the land and the water, and it was good. That's the rhythm here. Light, good. Land, good. Animals, good. Birds, good. Plants, good. After all that, he looks at the man in Genesis 2, and he goes, you know what? It's what? Not good. This is not good. It's not good that man should be alone. So look at it in Genesis 2.18. 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I'll make him a helper fit for him. This is not good. He shouldn't be alone. I didn't create it to work this way. He needs somebody to do life with. He needs somebody to advise him, a companion, a helper, somebody who's with them. And then God sets Adam to naming all of, the cre- all of the animals that he's already created, okay? So he sets Adam to naming these animals in search of a suitable helper for him, right? And so just imagine this. Adam has this parade of animals walking by him, and he's just naming each one that beforehand doesn't have a name. So he's going duck, cow, eagle, lion, elephant, spider, right? And he's naming animals, and Adam's not dumb. I mean, it takes an incredible intellect to name the entire creative order. I'm thinking he, he's not dumb. I mean, there's, he's, not, he's not missing this whole thing that there's two of each animal, right? There's two of each kind, and they're a little different. He's going, huh, there's a male cow and another different cow. That's weird. Oh, there's a lion. Here comes a lion. Sure enough, there's another lion. Looks different than the male, but it's this other, this other. And everybody has a a pair. Everybody has this other that they have to do life with. Everything is in pairs. And so I'm thinking he notices this, and he's naming the animals, and he's like, what about me? Right? Like, what's going on here? I'm just me, and each of these has a pair. Where's my other? Where's my, the other half to my pair? Because Genesis 2 says that there was not found a suitable helper for Adam. There was not a suitable helper for Everybody was taken because they weren't like him. They already had their others. And so Genesis 2 ends with God creating woman. And here's how he does it. He puts Adam to sleep, and he reaches into his body, and he pulls out a rib. Sounds pretty painful. And then he molds the rib into the woman. He creates the woman. And I love what happens next. If you're looking at your Bible in Genesis 2, um, the next part here in Genesis 2.23 is set off from the rest of the text. Like the margins are different and it's set off different. And that's because Adam is singing. He's singing. This is the first recorded song sung by mankind. And so the picture we get of Adam is that he's kind of just naming the animals and he's really unmoved by it all. He's going dog, horse, chicken, alligator, and he's just unmoved by it all. But when a, when a naked woman shows up, now he's singing, right? I mean singing, unmoved, and then he moves straight to singing. Look at the song in Genesis 2, verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Think about what he's saying. Notice what he's saying. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Everything else was bone of some other bones, flesh of some other flesh. This is flesh of my, this one looks like me. That's what he's saying, right? This one looks like me. She shall be called what? Woman. 
because she was taken out of man. And so he sings this song, and in it he names her woman, which in Hebrew means out of man or of man. So basically he names her mine. Dog, cow, lion, mine. That one's mine. That one's mine, okay? I don't care about all these. That one's mine. And he's not, it's not arrogant or possessive in a bad sense. He's not saying that she is an object to be owned. He's just been alone until now. And he sees a naked woman. And he's overcome at her beauty. And he goes, can I keep her? God, can I keep her? Can she be mine and I be hers? Can, can, we, can she be the other? My other, the other side of my pair, can she be mine? And all of this happens in the perfect shalom, peace, and rhythm that God created the world to work in because this is before the fall. So before sin entered the world, God looked at man and said, it's not good this way, and he created woman. And woman's been talking about it ever since. I'm kidding. (laughs) Think about that a second. Adam had the presence of God and the perfection of Eden. And yet God goes, it's not good. It's not good. He still was not whole without the woman. Think about that. And Genesis 2 ends with my favorite verse in the Bible, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's one I think we should put on T-shirts and all wear around. It's Genesis 2.25 It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. They were not ashamed. Every man's been trying to get back there ever since, right? (laughs) Naked and without shame. That's where I want to be, all right? Naked and without shame. Every man's been trying to get back there. And so at this point, it's okay to laugh in church about this, all right? It's okay to laugh. Some of you are like, I will not laugh in church, all right? That's your own thing, all right? I'm going to laugh. So at this point, everything is working as it is intended to work. It's perfect between the husband and his wife. They're operating in this godly rhythm. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no games, no pride, no selfishness, no manipulation or anger or any of those things. Just joy. Just joy at this point. And it's not just their relationship that's perfect. It's the rest of creation that's also perfect at this point. And and before we get going, there's something I want you to understand about this. Here it is. God intentionally made your life to work in a rhythm that brings him great glory and you great joy. God is after your joy and his glory. It's supposed to bring you joy. Are you tracking with me? And it's supposed to bring him glory. So listen, beloved. God's good design when it comes to gender and relationships and sex is for all these things to work rhythmically together in such a way that men and women experience the deepest amount of joy possible and also glorify God at the highest level possible. That's what's supposed to happen here. So single people, the desire in your heart for a husband or a wife comes, finds its root in God's glory. It's a good thing. And married people, wouldn't it be nice if it worked now like it did in Genesis 2? Man, if you just got up from a nap and there she was. Just, that's what happened to Adam. 
Got up from a nap, there she was. Well, if you just got up from a nap, there she was. No games, no confusion, no risk. Just the one standing in front of you in all of her glory and delight. Women, can you imagine how it would be if your relationship, you had this relationship built on trust and, and clarity. No insecurity, no doubt. All for your joy and God's glory. No toying with your emotions. No mind games. No broken hearts. Just serving the Lord with the man who loves the Lord even more because of the gift he gave him in you. Who delights in you. Can you imagine? That's what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. What happened? I mean, how did we get here? Well, what happened from there to here? Well, sin happened, right? Genesis 3, the fall happened. And when sin entered the world, it disrupted the, the rhythm that God created the universe to work in. And every single thing was affected spiritually, emotionally, relationally, everything. But, but I want to talk to you about two things, two ways that the, the fall in Genesis 3 affected the marriage relationship. I want to talk to you about two things real quick. The first one we see uh, right when the first sin happens in Genesis 3. And so I'm going to read that to you. Um, and it has to do with the way husbands are to love and lead their wives. It's pretty interesting. Check it out in Genesis 3, starting in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Did you catch it? Eve also gave some to her husband who what? You guys, he was with her, right? He gave some to her husband who was, she gave some to her husband who was with her. So while the serpent was deceiving Eve and tempting her and convincing her to disbelieve and disobey God, Adam just stood there passively, mutely watching the whole thing. So here's what I want you to see. Sin's fracturing of God's marriage rhythm caused something that has plagued every marriage since the first one. Passive laziness. Sin's fracturing of God's marriage rhythm has caused something that has plagued every marriage since the very first one. Passive laziness. Especially on the part of husbands, of which I am one. So men, let me just plead with you for a second by saying this. You may think the greatest battle you will face in your life spiritually is against lust, but it's not. The greatest battle you will face will be rejecting this passive laziness that has infected your heart and my heart since Genesis 3. Listen, whether you want to admit it or not, your natural de default especially when it comes to the sacrificial leadership of your wife, your natural default is to passively witness like Adam did in Genesis 3. That is your default. That is my default. 
But some of you might go, wait a second, pastor. I know a lot of men who their problem isn't passivity. It's not being passive. It's being too aggressive, right? Men are just too aggressive. I know a lot of men who struggle with aggression. I'd say our issue is that. No, the men you're talking about are overcompensating for their passive tendencies. Because that kind of aggressive, obnoxious behavior is fake masculinity, right? It takes the easy path of reaction and impulse rather than the much harder path of peace and humility and sacrifice. I've seen a lot of issues as I've done marital counseling. And what I've come to find out is that many men, many husbands, just won't lead. They just won't lead in their marriage. They won't step up. They won't own what God has given them to own. Why? They say it's too hard. Pastor's just too hard. She's too hard to lead. Relationships are just too hard. I'm a man. Give me a gun. I'll shoot a deer. It's fine. But I can't do relationships. I mean, I'll put them in the gym. Put them in the gym and they'll work hard, right? Put them in the gym. Listen, if you're 40 or over 40 and your bench record is still important to you, we got a problem, okay? That's not in the Bible. That's just my opinion. If you're more worried about your bench best, your best at bench press, than you are worried about the sacrificial leadership of your home, then we have a problem. If you'll work harder at the gym than you'll work in your family, then we have a problem. Are you tracking with me? You put them in the gym and they'll work hard. You put them in their workplace working at a goal or a promotion or whatever it is and they will work their tails off. You get them building an addition on the house and they will work night and day until that thing gets done. But when it comes to the difficulty of a relationship, specifically a marriage relationship, they wimp out. We wimp out. Men wimp out. Listen, being a man, according to the scriptures, is difficult. Being a boy with a beard is easy. For me. <laughs> being a man, a, a man like God outlined, that is, that is out of control, difficult. It requires self-sacrifice, laying your life down for the good of your wife and your children. That's difficult. It's impossible, really. Man, isn't it hard? I mean, just give me a little bit of a, yeah. I mean, this thing is hard, right? I mean, this thing is difficult. It's impossible, really. It's impossible, but we're going to get to that in a minute. I want to mention another specific way sin has affected the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And here it is. Sin's fracturing of God's marriage rhythm has caused love to lose its meaning. Sin's fracturing of God's marriage rhythm has caused love to lose its meaning. It's a word that we throw around a lot, isn't it? I mean, it can mean basically anything. Like, I love my kids, but also love my dog. I love my wife, but also love steak, right? We love Jesus, but we also love the Cubs, cards. I thought I'd get, a, thought I'd get something out of that. But then it, can't mean, it can't mean the same thing, right? I mean, it can't, it can't mean the same thing. Surely we don't mean the same thing in each of those sentences. And on a deeper level, love has come to mean just a feeling of attraction for someone else. 
And in our culture, it's a very fickle thing because you can fall in and fall out of love. It's like a pit that you're just walking along and you're just like, well, I fell in love. (laughs) And then miraculously, the pit can turn upside down and you can what? Fall out of love. I just fell out of love. It's this very fickle thing in our world. I can't help it, Pastor. I, just, I fell out of love with my husband. I fell out of love. I, I can't help it. I just don't love her anymore. I don't have feelings for her anymore. But that's not what love is, is it? I mean, it's not some impersonal force that takes over sometimes and then leaves involuntarily whenever it wants, right? I mean, love, the love between a husband and a wife, you can't involuntarily lose it like you lose your car keys, can you? Or your phone, like, sorry, I just lost the love that I had for you. See you later. Well, can you find it again? Because what are you talking about? I just fell out of love. I'll throw you right back in. Just give me a second, okay? Don't leave. Just give me a second. I'll find the love pit, and we'll toss you back in, and you'll fall back in to love. I mean, if it is that way, then a lot of the Bible just doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, commands to love other people like yourself, your neighbor as yourself, to love your enemy, to love Jesus. These things, by, by following his commands, these things don't make sense if love is anything but a choice. So what is love? Let's talk about it a second. Let's talk about how it's supposed to work, what what a marriage rhythm is supposed to look like. All right, so there are a lot of words in the Hebrew portion of the Bible, the Old Testament, that talk about love, that are translated into love, a lot of them. Uh, And so, but, but most of those don't have anything to do with a feeling, and they hover around ideas like steadfastness and long suffering, love. Long-suffering and perseverance, right? That's, love is not a feeling. Love is choosing to stay. That's what it is. It's choosing to stay no matter what. But there is one Hebrew word that's translated as love. That's the inspiration for Chandler's book, Mingling of Souls. And it's the Hebrew word dod. And it literally means that two souls will be mingled together and they'll become one. Okay, so two souls becoming one. And so God's plan is for a man and a woman in the bond of the marriage covenant to have their souls, not just their bodies, but their souls become one at the deepest level possible. Now that sounds awesome, doesn't it? Some of you are like, that sounds terrifying. That sounds awesome. If you're in a marriage relationship with someone you love, you're like, man, I would love for us to, to at, a, at the deepest level possible, our souls would mingle together. It sounds very satisfying, but, but what does it look like? I mean, how do we get there, right? That's the question. How do we get there? Um, one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to officiate a wedding ceremonies. I love getting to be a part of such a, a sacred, a monumental, once-in-a-lifetime moment in the life of of two people. And every time I do a wedding, I have everybody look at Ephesians 5, and I talk through the difference between a contract and a covenant. 
And so that's what I want to do with you right now is to talk through that difference and to read Ephesians 5 uh, starting in verse 22. Ephesians 5 uh, in, starting in verse 22, uh, the Apostle Paul begins to give us instruction as to, begins to give instruction to married people, husbands and wives. Next week, we're going to talk about family rhythm and we're going to use this passage, the rest of it, to look at parents and children, okay? So next week, that's next week. Don't miss that. But Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, it says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, this whole wives submit and husbands sacrifice thing is not exactly popular today, right? In our culture, it's not a popular passage of scripture. And I just want to, as an aside, I said we're going to be sprinting to the finish line and I'm not doing that right now, so I'm failing. But as, a side, as an aside, I just want to say I don't care. That I don't care what our culture thinks about Ephesians 5. And I don't think you should care either. As far as your belief and, and the way you understand this rhythm that God created the universe to work in, marriage or other, the way you understand your life as it relates to Christ, I don't care what our culture says. I don't. I care what the Bible says. And, and I'm just saying you should too. That your source of truth should be the Bible, not what your uncle says or your brother says or your Facebook friend says or what some person on the media says. None of that matters. What matters is God's word and God's truth alone. I thought I'd get an amen from some people who love the Bible, but that's cool. That's cool. The whole, um, it's cool. I'm just adding 30 minutes to the sermon right now. Amen. Somebody say amen. Bring it down. Okay, 20. We're down to 20. Uh, this whole wives submit and husbands sacrifice things out of control, uh, not popular, unpopular today. And if you've been married for longer than five seconds, you know it's unbelievably difficult to pull off, right? It's unbelievably, pretty much impossible, but I think that's the point. We'll get to that in a moment. But the passage said to submit, love, sacrifice, and listen, there's no other side to these statements. 
That's what I want you to hear. There's no other side, <coughs> excuse me, there's no other side to these statements. It's not like wives submit to your husbands as long as he's nice to you. Submit to your husband as long as you're happy with him, as long as he sacrifices for you. It didn't say that. It didn't say, husbands, love your wife and sacrifice for her as long as she respects you. It didn't say that. It just says love, respect, submit, sacrifice, period. But this is not the world's way of doing marriage, is it? The world's way of doing marriage is less like a covenant of grace and more like a contract or a business arrangement. And if you've got a cell phone, a cable provider, or a car or a house that you pay payments on, you understand how a contract works, right? In fact, the, the most lied about thing, the biggest lie ever told, the most common lie ever told in the history of humanity is I have read and agreed to the terms and conditions. Click. <laughs> right? You're all liars. You didn't read it? So... That's a contract. That's an example of a contract, okay? A contract is saying that, that this is an agreement between two parties arranging for the exchange of goods and services, right? So one person, one party gives a good or a service to the other, and the other then gives payment or another good or another service, and that's the way a contract works. And what it means is that if either party doesn't fulfill their end of the contract, the other party gets to get out of the contract, right? So if your cable stops working, you go to the cable company and you get it fixed. And if it doesn't get fixed, you don't have to pay for it anymore, right? On the other side, if you pay, if you stop paying for your cable service, the cable company doesn't have to continue giving service. Are you tracking with me? This is a contract. It's all very business-like. That's why it's called a contract. But how does that compare to marriage? Because some people talk about a marriage contract. Sometimes when people talk about marriage, it's, it's really good. They're talking about partnership in a really biblical, good way. But sometimes they make it sound like a business arrangement. They'll say things like to a married couple, you need to give 50-50. Right? You need to give 50-50. Each of you go halfway, you go to the 50-yard line. You need to give 50-50. Has anybody ever heard that before? For marriage, you need to give 50-50. Yeah, it's terrible advice. It's terrible. It's worldly advice. It doesn't fit God's design for marriage. Why? Because Ephesians 5 just said that the marriage, that marriage is supposed to be a picture and a reflection of the gospel. And Christ didn't look at you in your sin, wicked, depraved, dark, ignorant to him. He didn't look at you in your sin and go, come to the 50-yard line. Hey, why don't you meet me 50-50? Why don't we do 50-50 on your salvation? How's that sound? He didn't do that, did he? No, he went 100%. I said, marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. And those things are different. I, I said, I love officiating weddings. And my favorite part of the ceremony is when the bride and the groom turn to each other and they say their vows. That's when they, they say these really flowy, nice-sounding things that they intend to do, right? They, they want to do. It's day one. And they're saying, I'm doing this forever, right? I'm going to do this. But those vows can't be contractual. I mean, think about it. 
If you were sitting in a sanctuary witnessing a wedding ceremony, what would you think if you, you saw the bride turn to the groom and go, look, I'm into this thing as long as you have a job. As long as you keep a job, I'm in. As long as you mow the lawn, I'm in. As long as you're nice to me, I'm in. As long as you don't, that's not the way it works, right? What if the, what if the husband or the, the, the groom turned to the bride and say, listen, I'm in. I'll stick around as long as you keep the house clean and the kids quiet. I'll do that. That's where I'm done. You know, I, this is as far as I'll go. If I heard that, I'd pick my gift up from the gift table on my way out. Because that marriage isn't going to last, and they'll be pawning that thing within a year, right? <laughs> I mean, if you heard vows like that, you'd know something was wrong. Well, we don't actually say vows like that out loud. But my fear is that many of us make vows like that in our hearts. Marriage vows in our hearts because of the arrhythmia of sin that started back at the fall. We tend to be all about what is gained and not about what is given. No matter what we say, we tend to be all about what is gained and not about what is given. We turn relationships into contractual arrangements. I'll sacrifice for my spouse as long as she deserves it. I'll submit to my spouse as long as he agrees with me. I'll serve my spouse as long as they serve me in return. But that is nothing like a covenant of grace. You see, in a covenant of grace, we don't barter around services. We give ourselves to one another. Marriage is not a contract. It is a covenant. Covenant vows sound like this. For better or for worse. In richer or for poor. For richer or for poor. In sickness and in health. Till death do us part. That's covenant language. And that's different than a contract. And it means that the husband and wife give themselves to each other no matter what. It's not 50-50. It's 100 and 100, right? At any given moment, either spouse won't have 100% to give. But that doesn't change the other's commitment to give that 100% themselves. Because they're not in a contract. They're in a covenant. Just like the covenant of grace that God has made with us. One party can give 100% and the other party can give nothing. Because you and I give nothing to God. We bring nothing to the table. When it comes to our salvation, we bring nothing to the table. There's no benefit to God. There is no, oh yeah, I got a, it's a good thing Jake's on the team. Right? Like, oh, finally got Jake on the team. Now we can actually start winning. That's not the way it works. Right? I bring nothing to the table. Any benefit I am to the kingdom of God is given to me by that loving God who came 100% in the covenant of grace to win my soul back to him through the cross. It happened without any of my knowledge. It happened without any of my effort or my merit. He fulfills his covenant even though I can't give anything to it. He fulfills that covenant with Christ no matter what I do. Well, what I mean is that in a marriage covenant, when you're doing marriage in the rhythm it was created to work best in, it's, you, you give yourself to your spouse regardless 
of goods and services rendered. Because that's what true love is and because that's what glorifies God. If everything goes great and you find out on your honeymoon that, that everything is just as you've pictured it and it's perfect, you're in. But if you're like every other human being on the planet and you get to after the wedding day and you figure out that my spouse has some weird she wasn't telling me about... You find out that, man, my husband's got some cray-cray he was hiding in the closet. You're still in, right? You're still in. That's what it means to be in a covenant of marriage. There's no talk of leaving, no talk of divorce, no talk of, oh, I really wanted this to work. Listen, I've been married 13 years. I have not once, neither has Aaron, ever said the word divorce when it came to our marriage. Talking about our marriage, threatening, whatever. We've never once let that word into our conversation, our fights, our arguments, whatever. It's not on the table, guys. It's not even on the table because we're in a covenant. We're not in a contract. So I'm in for 100%. If she never gives anything, I'm in for 100%. That's the difference between a covenant and a contract. Outside of physical abuse or unrepentant physical sexual sin, once you're in a covenant, you stick with it no matter what. You don't fall out of it or bail because it's hard, and that's what, that's what real love is. Selfless love that's not contingent on what another person can give you. The kind of love God showed to us in Christ. But how do we pull this covenant thing off? I mean, it all sounds good, but is it too good to be true? Is it even possible? Sometimes it's hard to find any hope for this. As we look around in our culture and we see the messed up state of marriage, we think, man, am I, maybe I should just give up on this whole thing. But listen, don't confuse the perversion for the design. Don't confuse the perversion for the design. We see all the pain and the anxiety and results from relationships in conflict and not doing it the way God wants. And sometimes we go, maybe I shouldn't even desire that. Maybe I shouldn't even do marriage. Maybe marriage isn't even a thing that God wants us to do. Maybe don't confuse the perversion for the design. It's, we've messed it up because we're out of God's design for it, not because we're in God's good design for it. We've chosen to do marriage outside of the rhythm it was created to work best in. Listen, when God made the man in Genesis 2, he made all of him, every part. It was all God's design. Sin hadn't entered the world. And so it's not like when God made the man, he goes, okay, I'm almost done. Satan, why don't you come in and put your touch on the man? Why don't you go ahead and create a little crazy part of him? Why don't you just do that? It's not like Satan's crept in and put his little twist on God's good design of the man. Sin had not entered Eden yet. He was created as in God's design, just like God wanted him to be created. Listen, Satan is not a creator. He is a perverter. Satan is not a creator. He just twists God's creation. Are you tracking with me? That's important. God's the one who made the man with testosterone and the woman with estrogen. God's the one that made each desirable to the other. And it's a good thing. 
when treated the right way in the rhythm that God created marriage to work, the way God outlines the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, brings us joy. Emotionally, physically, spiritually. And God glory. There is hope for your marriage. Look at the first verse of the Bible again real quick. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This one sentence has the potential to change everything for you. It has the potential to change the way you see the world. Listen, beloved, the universe that you and I find ourselves in was created and ordered and is sovereignly governed by a good creator, God. It's not chaotic. It's not random. The game is not rigged. And follow me here. The implication of this truth is that there is wisdom woven into the very fabric of life that if submitted to makes life to the full possible. In other words, if God is the one who wrote the marriage song, then he's the one that will show us the rhythm to sing it right. If God is the one that wrote the marriage song, then he's the one who will show us the rhythm to sing it Right. When you get married, it's God who joins you together. God's behind this whole thing. And he's the only one that can make it happen in the right way. And don't forget, it's not for nothing. God intentionally made your life and my life to work in a rhythm that gives you great joy and him great glory. But the thing that gets in our way is is sin. You're born sinful, I'm born sinful. It's not just what we do, it's who we are. That means that changing our behavior isn't good enough alone. We can't be good enough, it's impossible. But listen, that's how marriage is supposed to teach us the gospel. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how marriage helps us understand the gospel. Because as I'm trying and failing to love Aaron as Christ loved the church and sacrifice myself for her, and she, my wife Aaron, is trying and failing to submit to me as the church submits to Christ, we're hammered with this profound truth. We need help. We need help. I need help. But look at your spouse and say, we can't do this on our own. Let's try that again, guys. <laughs> look at your spouse in the eyes if they're sitting with you and say, we can't do this on our own. It's impossible, and follow me here, if the struggle we experience in our marriage is because we're sinners, then the antidote to our marital struggles is the same antidote for our sin, right? It's the same problem and the same fix. So it's not going to be fixed by our behavior and the way we do things. Trying to fix behavior alone isn't going to cut it. Me, as a sinner, leaving my current sinner and going to marry another sinner is not going to fix the problem. Right? I'm bringing my sin with me. It's not going to fix the problem. It ain't going to cut it. The grace of God in Christ 
who laid down his life for you. That's what fixes your sin problem. That's the antidote. That's why we can run to him. His grace covers us and gets us back into his rhythm. And we see his unconditional love for us so clearly in the marriage covenant because he doesn't love some future version of you. He doesn't love some version that's going to produce for him. But he loves the real you. He doesn't love us because we can do something for him, because of some benefit. The truth is we can offer nothing to God, and yet he loves us all the same. The wounded, messy, messed up, imperfect, real us. You want God to help your marriage? You want God to help you find a wife or a husband? The first and ongoing step in that process is to forget about all that and start focusing on dealing with your sin problem. And the only way you can do that is by giving yourself to God completely, not just a Sunday-only thing, not just in front of other people, but the private you, the, the real you, the dark you, the messed up you. Give yourself over to God completely. Surrender to him, submit to him, follow him. Then, as you make him and his rhythm primary in your life, you'll find his grace is present in every area of your life, including your marriage including your marriage. Husbands, that's your only shot at leading like you're supposed to, sacrificing your life for your wife, loving her like Christ loved the church. Wives, that's your only shot at godly submission and becoming the wife that God has created you to be. Single people, that's your only shot and following God's leading as you look for your other in a way that glorifies God. If you haven't given your life over to Christ completely, don't worry about your marriage for the next few minutes. Just do that. Just surrender yourself completely to him if you're serious about that. During our last song, we'll have some prayer workers on the side, and they would love to pray with you. Everybody say this with me. Say, I need help. We're just going to stay here till we can get these words. It's, I know, it's, kind of, it's big words. Big words. You guys ready? Say, I need help, I need help. In, my in my marriage. Why don't you stand with me? Prayer team, worship team, you guys can take your places. Here's my prayer for you today. May you feel where you're out of step with God's rhythm and admit readily and openly that you need help. May God reveal to you what real love is through his son Jesus. And may your ideas of marriage be formed not by culture or convenience or popular opinion, but by the one who created it and wants only your joy and his glory, God alone. Make sure you get to a life group this week and talk this over. Bring somebody next week as we talk through family rhythm and parenting, love for you to be here for that. And then as always, just like today, you've been helped to take your next step towards God in the area of marriage. Don't let it stop with you. It's not supposed to stop 
with you. Take it out of here and talk to somebody else about what we talked about today. Be a Jesus follower who disciples and makes other Jesus followers. Don't let this be a dislocation only thing. Let this be a life thing. Are you with me? All right. God bless you guys. See you next week. God bless.